While You Were Folding, Episode 20, Death Row Ministry with Jen Troush. Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher, and you're listening to While You Were Folding. This show is my weekly excuse to talk about my favorite things, marriage, parenting, faith, friendship, culture, what I'm reading and watching, and whatever else strikes my fancy. I've been a wife for 10 years and a mother for eight. I won't pretend to be an expert. I will introduce you to some amazing guests, ask a whole bunch of questions, invite you into the conversation, and encourage you to share what you heard while you were folding. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I actually opened up my conversation with Jen with a prayer, so that's going to be the opening prayer for this episode, but we have so much great content. I want to get to that as soon as possible. Before I open up the interview with Jen, I wanted to give a little bit of context for listeners from a Catholic perspective. So today's podcast, we're talking about death row ministry with Jen Troush. Jen is part of a group called Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty. And Jen and the group that she's a part of, they visit regularly with those on death row. And I wanted to give Jen a chance just to share about her experience with the men who she lovingly refers to as the guys, just to give all of us an insight into what it means for these men to be on death row and what their lives are like within the prison and to humanize these men. But before I get to that, I wanted to take this opportunity to be sure and share what Catholics are taught to believe about the death penalty and capital punishment in general. So there are two important passages I wanted to be sure to point out, and I've included these in the show notes. The first one is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And those of you who aren't familiar with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this is basically a beautiful guidepost given to us from the church to help us to really hammer out um, church teaching, what it is that we're supposed to believe, because obviously, obviously everything is not going to be found within sacred scripture. And we believe that God has given us the church to be our leader to teach us what we should believe, because we need to be able to figure out these difficult issues. So the catechism organizes the issues by paragraph and section. And the part I'm going to quote from is paragraph number 2267. And all of this can be found online. And again, I'll include this in the show notes. So paragraph number 2267 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that, If, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means, as there are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity to the dignity of the human person. So the paragraph before that, which I didn't quote from, that it's possible for a culture to have recourse to the death penalty. If, it says... If this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. And then what it said in that second paragraph that I quoted from is that it is very unlikely in a country like the United States for lethal means to have to be put in place for the public to be protected from individuals because we have a strong modern prison system that should be able to protect 
other people from the aggressor who has been accused of a crime that would place them on death row. And the other quote that I wanted to be sure and share is from a papal encyclical. For those of you who aren't Catholic, an encyclical is basically a document that a pope would write on behalf of the church to give to the believers for a way to clarify church teaching. And I'm afraid my Italian, my not my Italian, my Latin is horrible, so my pronunciation might be incorrect. Um, I have always heard it pronounced Evangelium Vitae, which is St. Pope John Paul II's encyclical on the value and inviolability of human life. And the paragraph of that document, which I'll also include in the show notes, it's paragraph number 56 of Evangelium or Evangelium Vitae. And in uh, paragraph 56, St. Pope John Paul II talks about the death penalty. And in the second paragraph of number 56, he says, For these purposes to be achieved, the nature and extent of the punishment must be carefully evaluated and decided upon, and ought not go to the extreme of executing the offender except in cases of absolute necessity. In other words, when it would not be possible otherwise to defend society. So again, within this document, St. Pope John Paul II is upholding what the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches, that if it is absolutely necessary for the public to be protected from the offender, then yes, the death penalty can be used licitly. It can be a moral option, but it is unlikely in a country like the United States for the death penalty to be the only option. So I wanted to be sure and share that. As um, a Catholic woman myself, because this is a podcast from the Catholic perspective, I wanted to put that out there for those of you who have not taken the time to read through those documents to find out what the Catholic Church teaches. And I also wanted to be sure and give Jen an opportunity as a member of, I've referred to it as Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty. And online, they have another website. They refer to themselves also as Nebraskans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. So you might find both names online. But I wanted to give Jen an opportunity just to share about her experience, to share about these men, the guys who she's gotten to know and talk about what it means to literally go and visit the imprisoned. So without further ado, here's Jen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father of mercy, thank you for bringing Jen tonight to come on the podcast. Thank you for this ministry Thank you for the gift of these men's lives and just the witness that they can be to all of us to know what it means to be imprisoned, to mean to know what it means to be imprisoned by sin, to know what it means to know you and love you and to be forgiven and to lean on your mercy. Please help us to be the father, the loving father to everyone that we meet and to not judge others and to leave that to you but to be the face of mercy, especially to those who are struggling and are trapped in sin, and to acknowledge how trapped we are ourselves. And because of how you have forgiven us, to, like I said, be that face of mercy for others. We pray this through your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Jen. 
<laughs> Welcome to While You Were Folding. Thanks Thank for coming you. on the podcast tonight. Yes, my honor. So before we jump in, I would love it for those who do not know you, mm-hmm. tell us who is Jen Troush. Give us a brief sketch about your vital information for those who don't know you. <laughs> yes, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I love how Brenda said she identifies in her early 30s. I'm going to steal that and say I do too. Um, I've been married to my husband, Michael, for three years. Believe it or not, we met on Match.com. I'm sure he'd tell you a different story, but that is the true one. <laughs> I work uh, right now as a speech-language pathologist um, in a Title I high school here in Lincoln, but um, I'm going to be shifting gears in the future, and I will be attending law school in 2019. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know where you are attending law school yet? You don't have to say if you don't want to, but do you no, know? Okay. I have um, narrowed down to two. Holy cow, I had no idea. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So can I ask, big picture, what you're hoping to do with your law degree? I am very passionate about causes in education, um, in social justice, kind of um, generally fighting the good fight. I've always been very called to do that type of thing, um, and I just have felt very called to go to law school. I've always wanted to. And I said, oh, why not? Wow. So what kind of law do you hope to practice? I'm not sure yet. um, Mm -hmm. But I look forward to kind of exploring that and Mm -hmm. figuring out the right fit. There's part of me that's really fierce that said I'd be a great prosecuting attorney. (laughs) And there's part of me that says, you know, I could do everything pro bono. So Uh there's got to be a happy medium, right? (laughs) Wow. I am so so excited to hear about that next adventure. That's yes. awesome. <laughs> yes. And I know you, of course, through church, um, as I was a convert to Catholicism in Easter of 2017. So you're still a baby Catholic. I'm baby Catholic. Welcome. Brand new. Yes. My husband says I'm a better Catholic than he is. <laughs> Most of you converts are. You put yeah. us cradle Catholics to shame. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that you want the listeners to know about you before we... Oh, yes. (laughs) It's so new and exciting. My husband and I are expecting our first child or children. We find out next week, so... Congratulations! (laughs) Thank you. We're very excited. I didn't know whether or not you wanted to share that on the podcast, but I think that's wonderful. We can cover that whole situation in prayer and pray for this unborn baby or babies. Yes. Ask God for his protection over him or her or them. Yes. We will see. (laughs) We'll find out. I would love for you to rewind in time and talk to us about how you first got interested in death row ministry, because that's why I've asked you to come on the podcast today. Yeah. When we met for a coffee date last month, I wanted to hear all about this because I have never known anyone who has gone to visit a prisoner in the state penitentiary, Mm -hmm. let alone someone who is on death row. And I Mm -hmm. think this is amazing. And I would love for you to share your story with everyone. But before we get to what you're doing now, can you take us back and tell us how did you get interested in ministry within the prison, first of all? And what is your background with your family? I know your dad and everything else. So. Well, I will certainly give credit where credit is due. And my father um, is amazing and has worked in education and 
um, social justice issues um, his entire career. And he started visiting death row inmates um, several years ago. And of course, I had a natural reaction and said, well, that's really different. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Um, and I just thought, well, I'm not really called to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really scary. Um, and, you know, I would talk to him and, you know, well, how are, how are the guys doing is how he, we refer to them. And he says, oh, the guys are great. You know, they just hope to meet you sometime. And he just had this spirit about him when he would come back from visiting. I thought, you know, this is worth exploring. I'm just kind of curious. And, you know, several years went by and I just grew to admire what he was doing. Um, And actually through the process of my conversion, um, I was preparing for my general confession. And I was really... um, nervous about it. And I was really struggling with the ideas of forgiveness and worthiness. And, you know, your general confession is, um, for a non-Catholic was, you know, 30 years of crud (laughs) and wounds to be digging up. And so, um, I was just really struggling in my heart with that. And I really felt called to explore Pope Francis's, um, call to go to the margins in that year of mercy and learn more deeply about forgiveness and worthiness in the context of sin. And so I thought, well, you know, Dad, can I just go with you one time with your group? And this would just be kind of cool. And he said, well, yeah. And so that's kind of how it started and never looked back. (laughs) So how old were you, do you remember, when your dad started participating in this ministry? In my late 20s. Um... I think I was out of grad school, so I don't know, 26, 27, something like that. And then prior to that, did he have any involvement with ministry in the general prison population, or has he always exclusively worked with death row? He's exclusively worked with death row. Wow. He just jumped right in. Yeah. That is totally That's where I get it from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow, I love that. Okay, yeah. so can you explain what the group is that he is yeah. a part of? Um, we're a part of Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty, so NADP, um, and that group goes to uh, visit death row inmates um, at different times. The prison really decides when we're allowed to go, and they schedule them. Um, we don't get to pick um, the frequency um, or the day. Um but we go with them, and usually we have uh, four to eight um, people from the group that go and visit, and they're from Lincoln area, Omaha area, uh, mostly the eastern side of Nebraska, um, and that's uh, the group that we go with. Um, but my dad also uh, has clergy status um, at the state penitentiary, and so he's able to visit on a more frequent basis and have more individual or small group contact with um, the men that, uh, is not, um, it doesn't have the same bureaucratic red tape as the NADP visits do. And that was a question that I was hoping to get to later, but since you brought it up, I'd like to talk about it now. Sure. Your dad being a Christian, Mm -hmm. he is able to have clergy status Mm -hmm. and being Catholic now being considered clergy Mm -hmm. is something that would not be possible for you as a woman. Yes. 
Yet, I did a little bit of research because we had talked about this last month when we got together for coffee. And I had said, oh, well, that's too bad because this is such a beautiful, wonderful ministry that you're mm-hmm. participating in. And yet, because as a woman, you are unable to be a priest, mm-hmm. and this podcast is not trying to say that we believe women should be priests. <laughs> that is not what we are saying. But the idea that you should still be able to minister to these yes. men is a and do that as the gift that it is. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that there is this national organization called the National Association of Catholic Chaplains. Did mm-hmm. you know about this before I sent this to you? Um, I had heard a little bit about it. And I'm kind of going to, as an SLP, I want to play with the semantics and the wording of things, of course. And that's speech-language <laughs> pathologist. Yes. So I want to play with the words. And the um, prison system uses the words clergy status. And so in explaining that um, in my application to the diocese, I have to say, um, you know, chaplain type duties and Mm -hmm. more of a ministry that way. And so um, I am applying for that. And I have applied, um, hoping to hear back very soon um, about pursuing that. And what that would do would be allow me to visit the men um, on a more frequent basis, dig a little bit deeper into some of the spiritual things that they want to talk about, just a little bit more intimate in our in our visit context. And because our, our visits with the group are just that, they're a, a visit with the group. And so it's more whole group. And, um, you know, although it is a almost a three-hour visit um, by the time we're done, you know, it is in a group setting. And so sometimes you don't get to dig deeper into some of those things. And um, that's something that several of the men have asked me to pursue. Um, to get clergy status. Yeah. So we can so we can do that. So in order to be considered a chaplain mm-hmm. as a Catholic, that requires going through this national organization. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding, just from the little bit of research that I did, that you either have to have a master's. Mm-hmm. In theology? Is that? I think it's theology or religion, yes. And then go on to do this additional training or have something like two years worth of specific training to become a chaplain. Yes. And um, due to our timeline and the nature of death row, um, that's not something that is always really possible. Um, And so we're kind of changing those words and saying clergy status and what I need for that um, are a couple of letters and um, one is from the diocese, you know, I'm in good standing and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they do some additional background checks and just to make sure that I am who I say I am and, you know, I don't have other uh, motivations or anything for that. Yeah, because you think about Jesus gave us the corporal and spiritual works of mercy that mm-hmm. ways for us to live out building one another up in the body of Christ. And yeah. I don't think he ever would have imagined that you not being able to be a priest should limit your ability to minister mm-hmm. to these men in this way. And yes. I don't think that the Catholic Church, because it has decided that it doesn't have the authority to mm-hmm. allow women to become priests, should in any way prohibit a woman from ministering to someone in prison for that yeah, reason. So I agree. I think that's awesome. I, yeah. I'm excited to find out what comes of all of that because it would be a shame for red tape to prohibit someone from ministering to someone in yeah. that way. So keep yeah. us posted. 
I think a lot of people have neck like me, mm -hmm. zero experience or exposure to what it means to be on death row, what the logistics look like. Mm -hmm. So let's go back. I want to know, in order to even get involved with Nebraskans against the death penalty and this mm -hmm. group, and how does one get the clearance to get to go and make a visit to someone on death row? Yes. Um, it... <laughs> It seems that every every year um, there's a little bit more paperwork we have to do, um, but there's a background check, um, some different application forms. It's not super um, prohibitive of anyone. Are there age restrictions? Yes. For this group, it is 18. Okay. It is 18. Um, and we have to present a driver's license when we go, and we have the biggest part is we have to be on the memo that's issued by the guard's supervisors. Um, and uh, if you're not on the said memo that's given out that day, then they will not let you in. And so there are some great, um, we've learned, <laughs> there's some communication um, sequences that have to happen as far as, you know, who is coming on May 1st. Um, you know, and so they'll have everyone's names down in, and so if someone else is coming and maybe they said, well, maybe I'll come, I'm not sure, um, they won't always let that person in. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of have to work through that. But just joining the group and saying, hey, I'm really interested in this, get me the paperwork and we'll get it going. So if someone such as myself, who was mm -hmm. not involved with Nebraskans against the death penalty, mm -hmm. decided... I feel like this is something that God is calling me to. I'm going, I'm mm -hmm. really interested. Would I just have to fill out this paperwork on my own? I don't have to have some sort of group umbrella that I'm participating under? You know, I don't know. The only people I know who have visited the men before have been family members. Okay. Um, I don't know. And that is heartbreaking to me. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is exactly why we're having this conversation today. Yeah. So to your knowledge, aside mm -hmm. from those who participate in Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty mm -hmm. and the guys' family members, mm -hmm. there are no other visitors. Not that I know of. Um, Possibly other chaplains? Yes. I know there's other clergy status that does that, um, and attorneys, of course. Sure. Um I don't know if friends can do that. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. You already answered this. Prior to your first visit with Nebraskans <laughs> Against the Death Penalty, you had so you had gone with your dad before you became an official part of this group. Is that right? No. So you had to go through mm -hmm. the paperwork so that you mm -hmm. became part of the group and then got clearance to come and visit. Yes. Okay. And when was your first visit? It was during your year that you were doing RCIA? Yeah, I think it was 2016, maybe that fall, I think is, is right. Maybe that winter of 2016. Paint the picture for us. <laughs> Have well, you ever been to the prison before? No, I had never been to the prison. Um, you know, and so we're driving down and we all carpool down to Tecumseh and you're just nervous the whole way. You know, you don't know what to expect. What do I wear? Um, which sounds like a ridiculous question, you know. No, it doesn't. But there are dress code restrictions. Can you tell us what the dress yes. code is? Um, like paperwork, it seems to change um, whenever someone likes to change it. 
Um, and so we have been refused entry um, based on what we're wearing, which is great that Orschlands is nearby and we could buy something. <laughs> I, don't, I do not know this story. What, is yes. this a clothing store? It, well, it's a, it, like farm um, merchandise. They also have, you know, some clothes, like you could okay. buy pajama pants or something there, but okay. mostly farm goods and things. Generally, um, you need to wear a crew neck shirt. Um, so something that goes up and covers everything, um, but that is... Not super loose, but not super fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been told by one of the guards that they don't want something super tight, not necessarily because, um, you know, your body would be more visible, but more so that it's easier for someone to strap something to their body when their clothing is tight than it is when it's loose. Because, you know, when we go through the search process, they can feel that under your clothes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. So we get to the prison, and it kind of sits uh, on a hill, and you enter on the east side. And, um, you know, there's just like a little guard door and barbed wire all around and this really um, horrible parking lot that used to be asphalt and has never been repaired and is more gravel than asphalt. And, you know, you get out and we take our quarters. Um, You're allowed to bring $20 per person in quarters. And I'll tell you why. Um, And you come in and, you know, you give them your ID and they check you on the memo. We always bring a copy of the memo because the guys are really wonderful and make sure we have a copy to make sure that it's dated right. Um, because we've run into that as well. Um, but on my first time, you know, we get our um, IDs and our uh, like a Tupperware uh, bin for your quarters. Um, you can't just take the roll in. And so we empty all of our quarters into the Tupperware and we put our things in a locker. And then we go individually through security. Um, and there's uh, metal detectors. And of course, I don't want to give away too much, but it is quite thorough. And they take you in a room um, one at a time and, you know, they check behind your ears and your mouth, on your feet, um, in every part of your clothing, um, and also on your head. Um, You know, sometimes I'll wear my hair down or I'll wear my hair up and they'll go through your head like you're getting a head massage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you don't wear jewelry. I just wear my wedding band and, uh, you know, you don't have other things on you. You, I wear what I'm going to call my fishing jeans. Um, you know, something I would wear up to the cabin and like a loose fitting shirt or something, but you can't wear a jacket or a sweater, um, anything with a hood, you know, the zip up you have on, we couldn't be wearing, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like tennis shoes. And so I kind of dress down like I'm going to be working outside for the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I was really intimidated the first time, you know, after you get through security, you're standing there with your Tupperware of quarters and they buzz the first door and it opens and you go through and then you wait for that one to shut and then the next one will open. Kind of like Star Wars. Yeah. And there, no guard is with you. Um, You go on your own. Um, So once you're cleared through security... mm -hmm. You're on your own. You are on your own. Up until... So you need to navigate yourself to the visiting room. Okay. um, Which if you've been there before is not too difficult. Um, And so you walk through this very long tiled hallway that has pictures of the penitentiary as decoration. Wow. And um, 
you know, so you are very much in an institution in that way. You know, there's not like a doctor's office picture of a landscape or something. Um, it's mm-hmm. pictures of guard towers or tables or something like that. So I found that coming in to be kind of strange, mm-hmm. um, Alice in Wonderlandish. And then um, you go up to the visiting room and then the same process of the doors. Um, and I've been always curious, in between those doors is a big mirror where you look at yourself. And I always thought, oh, good, I can check my teeth one last time, you know, but I thought that's really different. But then having seen um, one of the guys visit with his family, you know, his mother was there and she really wanted to look her best, you know, so she got one last chance to make sure that, you know, she was looking just right. And so um, I always kind of smile in that mirror when I think of that mom. And then we enter a visiting room and it's more of a large, like a cafeteria type room, Um, There's a guard booth there with two guards, um, usually the same ones, several vending machines and some bathrooms and a couple private rooms. And then on the other side of the room is, I call them like a call booth, you know, where someone would not have a face-to-face or an in-person meeting um, with an inmate. Um, And those are usually for general population. But when we are doing our visits, we are the only people in the visiting room. Death row inmates do not have contact with general population inmates. They're in their own separate um, ward, if that's the right word. And so they eat with each other. They sleep with each other. um, They have recreation together. They are very much a family because that's all they have um, for their duration. And are these men that are on death row, Mm -hmm. do they have individual cells after they leave the visiting room or do you know? Yes. Okay. I believe so. Mm -hmm. I've not asked too much detail of them, you know, what their daily life is like, what their Mm -hmm. routine is like. Most of the time when we visit, it's really driven by what they want to talk about and you kind of have to read them. You know, and I've, I've learned as I've gone that that's a hard place to be for many different reasons. And, you know, sometimes they might get difficult news from the home front or they just might be having a rough day. Um, You know, they might have something on their mind that they really want to talk about. And so you kind of just go from there. And I've never pried too much about that. They've never volunteered the information, so I've never asked. And I would love to know, not to get into the specifics of Mm -hmm. any particular of the inmate stories or what they've Mm -hmm. been accused of, but I'd love to know just general numbers, what we are talking about when you go to visit. Mm -hmm. How many men in the Mm -hmm. state of Nebraska are on death row right now? Um, There's currently 11. um, And Carrie Dean Moore, I will say, is uh, oftentimes in the media, he's said to be the longest serving Nebraska death row inmate, which is actually missing some information. He's the longest serving death row inmate in the country. Um, How many years is that? uh, Older than I am alive. Um, I believe, I want to say 82 or 84, uh, he was convicted. Um, But several of them um, have been in recent uh, weeks and months um, been given notice um, for execution. And there's a lot of um, political things going on uh, around that. And so their moods have been really heightened, I guess. Um, You know, they're a little bit more on edge, of course, um, because there's a possibility their friend is going to die. You know, and so we kind of 
go in being very open about whatever they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. We talk about and we go in and um, we're usually there first. And so we wait a little bit and they go through the same security that we do um, as far as one-on-one searching. And they have to come with, um, I've never asked them what it is, but it's a piece of paper, kind of like a doctor's note that says, you know, I'm good to come. I'm on the list. Yeah. Um, And they have to hand it to the guard. um, And then they all come out and, Most of them really, you know, they try to look really nice for the visits. You know, they've got a little something in their hair or Mm -hmm. they, you know, put on their really nice shoes or something. And um, we greet each other with hugs. Um, The first time they meet you, they'll give you a handshake. So there are no handcuffs? No, no, there's no handcuffs. There's no chains. No, uh uh-uh. And we meet just as people. They're not in... Um, they do have the option to wear what they want. So some wear jeans and a shirt. Um, one of them wore a button down. I won't mention any names because they'll just pick on each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like brothers. You know, they'll wear a shirt. And some of them, um, sometimes they'll wear their, their khakis. So there's not an official uniform that they are expected to wear? Not for these visits, but they, you know, have the freedom to wear what they what they want. And they get their clothing from, um, from commissary they have to purchase. Um, so can you explain what that is for those yes. who are outside of the world of visiting commissary people in prison? Is like, and do not know anything. <laughs> you know, if you're like on, um, a military base, there's a store there that you have to purchase your goods from. Commissary is like that store for prison. And so, you know, if you want, you know, different shoes or you want, um, you know, different food items or that type of thing. They transfer money into commissary. And so you have to figure out how to get money deposited into your commissary fund. How does one do that? You have to have outside resources. Um, And obviously for some people, that's very tough. And one of the things um, that's new this year, um, well, let me think. It may have been halfway through 2017, is the guys were able to purchase their own devices. It's like an iPod and they had to be pre-approved. They had to purchase it through um, the prison because they don't have unrestricted access to computers or other means of communication. And so they are able to look at news or check on some sports, things that we do every day and very much take for granted. And they are also able to email on these devices. On the devices. Um, that they have had to purchase. Yes, that they have had to purchase. And the email service is JPay. Um, and I am active on it. And so between visits, I will talk with the guys. And in fact, I emailed them a couple of them um, bef- just the other day to say, you know, hey, I'm doing the podcast on Wednesday. You better listen, listen in. <laughs> <laughs> so would they be able to listen yes. to this podcast? Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and they are thrilled. Um, so shout out to you guys. And uh, unfortunately, on JPay, they, um, the rates went up in 2018. And it costs them 25 cents to send an email and 25 cents to receive an email. When I correspond with them, it costs me 25 cents just to send the email. And so in order for me, obviously, that's a cost barrier for them just to be able to communicate. And as a speech language pathologist, I think everyone has the right to communication. 
And so, you know, I want to send the guys a couple bucks so they can keep talking with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if I wanted to send them $5, it ends up costing me $10 because there's a fee to put money in their account. Everything costs money. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to be able to communicate with another human being costs money. What about access to telephone? Can the men make phone calls? They can make phone calls, um, but very similarly gorged rates apply. And can the phone call be made to anyone? Do you know what kind of restrictions there are on phone calls and what restrictions are placed on the person making an inbound call to the prison? I don't know. I've never communicated with them by phone. Okay. So your communication with Mm -hmm. the men between visits Mm -hmm. is through, it's called JPay. JPay email. Mm -hmm. So the men have to be able to have access through their account. Mm -hmm. They have to have the device that they purchased through the prison. And then they have to be able to purchase, they call them stamps, like you're sending a letter um, through emails. They call them stamps. So they have to purchase the device through the prison and then purchase the stamps in order to communicate. I think I'm not understanding how the money gets into their accounts. Mm -hmm. So let's say Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I am on death row. Mm -hmm. Am I able to take the money that I had in my banking savings account with me to my account that I have now while I'm in death row? No, it um it has to go through lots of different channels. The prison has to approve it, um, and then it's almost like wired in. Um, but because you basically have lost those assets, you don't have control over that. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it is maybe family members that are able to yes. go about if they have you out? contact with family members or friends, um, and some of us will will do that. Um, you know, I love talking with the guys and um, talking about lots of different things. Um, you know, Eric and I talk about football and give them a really bad time about those Raiders and, you know, those types of things. And to be able to do that, um, I want them to have that contact. And so I am able to provide that for them. What was it like the first time you arrived, you've been cleared, you mm-hmm. go to the visiting mm-hmm. room, and all of a sudden, the guys, as you call them, mm-hmm. I want to call them just the guys from here on out <laughs> yes. in this interview. So the guys come into the visiting room. Mm-hmm. What was that moment like for you? Were you emotionally prepared to be face-to-face with the men that, with the guys that your dad had described to you? Because I think... prior to this, you had read yes. all about the guys individually, their cases mm-hmm. and everything. Yes. I, um, in typical Jen Troush fashion, I overdid it <laughs> <laughs> and I stayed up way too late in the nights before. Um, you know, just thinking the more information I have, the better, you know, I want to be equipped for this. And I don't think that was the right approach because nothing can equip you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, just so nervous. I was nervous that I wouldn't be enough for them, which sounds really strange. What do you mean by that? But I was nervous that they would think, you know, well, why did this silly girl come in and visit us? You know, what has she got to offer? I was intimidated. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And actually, I had done way too much research and looked up um, cases and, um, you know, some of the icky details. And one case in particular, um, and I very much have wonderful respect and love for this for this guy, and so I won't name him, but um, the the sins that they had committed were made very public, um, you know, for all of society to judge. And so, you know, you can see all of these details about a case and a crime and, you know, their life is immediately judged. And I judged them and I was so worried about meeting this person and I, that I just, I made myself sick. And the night, um, before I woke up really early that morning and I was, I had this horrible nightmare and what I truly believe was spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. And it was so strong and so intense. My whole body was shaking and it was so vivid, this picture in my mind um, of this person and, you know, what I had read and I just thought, oh my goodness, I can't do it. And so I prayed and I had this wonderful visualization um, about that case and some of those specifics and um, felt very reassured and just said, you know, God, it's in your hands, but I know that this is happening and it means that I'm getting close to something really good. Mm -hmm. And so I have to go. And so there was one person in particular I was very nervous to meet. Um, and so when that person came out, I just thought, oh, well, they're not really how I pictured. <laughs> and, um, you know, as we kind of got to know each other and I really just saw that person and all of them as the people that God sees them as. You know, I saw this one person as just a lost young boy, um, you know, who just had lost their way and something had happened in their heart and they lost their way. And I was able to see them as God saw them. And I just, I found that to be so tremendously powerful, um, that it draws me every time I go. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've taken from this is being able to see people as God sees them because, you know, I am so grateful that the sins I struggle with are not broadcast for the world, mm -hmm. um, you know, and made very public for everyone to look at me with that label um, that I, I found that just to be so powerful and almost a sign of divine intervention. Um, you know, I love the visits because every time we leave, you know, you enter through this east side uh, guardhouse and you exit through that door as well. And when we come out, um, it's later in the evening. And so in the spring and summer and fall, before it gets too dark, um, there's a sunset behind the prison. And it just, it sounds so weird. But the last time I was there... Um, my dad and I had carpooled and I pulled the car off to the side and I said, hold on just a second. I want to take a picture. And I said, is that weird? <laughs> you know, who wants to take a picture of a prison with a sunset in the background? But it just is beautiful to me um, what happens in those visits and what happens with those men. Um, 
and how we minister our love and forgiveness to them. And you have shared that picture on social media, so I've yes. gotten to see it before. <laughs> I know exactly that image mm-hmm. that you're describing. Mm-hmm. And I love thinking about you, this petite, <laughs> I just adorable, for lack of a better word, young woman coming mm-hmm. in to death row ministry and mm-hmm. meeting these men face to face. And it, there are 11 men that come mm-hmm. and usually are most of the men coming on these visits? Usually, the um, anytime we've gone, we've had like four to eight. Um, we've never had all of them there at once. Um, you know, for varying reasons, but usually six to eight guys are there. So when... When the men come in, when the guys come in, are you pairing off and people talking one-on-one? Or what's the dynamic like? And how do you start that conversation? (laughs) How do you begin a relationship? How did you become friends with the guys? Can you tell us about that? Um, (laughs) Because obviously you knew their stories from what you read in the newspaper. You knew the newspaper stories. Yeah. I didn't know their heart. You did not know them. Yeah. It, um, Do you regret that you knew what you read in the newspaper prior to your first visit? That's a hard question. I don't, I'm totally putting you on the I spot. I don't know. On one hand, I'm really glad that I went through that kind of switch in my heart um, because it really helped me to understand worthiness and forgiveness on a very deep level. Mm-hmm. Um I would certainly not recommend it to future visitors, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because that is tough. But um, when we go in, uh, there's these lines of chairs, you know, like you'd have in a theater where um, they're all kind of this plexiglass old material, you know, the, the really old uh, garage doors, mm-hmm. like that material. Oh, wow. Is that pl- plexiglass? Is that what that's called? The... Fiberglass. Yeah. 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 Um, and they're the chairs are all linked together with this common armrest. And so they're all one piece. And then there's these coffee tables in between. And so once the guys come in, the rule is once they sit down, they can't move. Um, But we are able to move around them. And depending on how many are there, sometimes they'll separate us into two groups. Sometimes they won't. It kind of depends on how the guards are interpreting a memo. Okay. <laughs> a little bit more red tape there. Um, but most of the time we're in one one group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of, you know, hey, I'll sit by John one time and then I'll rotate over to Ray and then I'll sit over by Marco. And so we kind of rotate. But mm-hmm. the first time, you know, you just sit and say, well, hi, I'm Jen. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I'm Paul's daughter. Nice to meet you. And you know, by the end, they're hugging you. And I, as a speech language pathologist, I think um, I've been given the gift of connecting with people that are hard to connect with um, and communicating people that can't, communicating with people that can't always communicate well. Mm -hmm. And so I just watched them. You know, I watched how they interacted with each other. And I saw a lot of, oh, you know, gentle ribbing, you know, kind of like, Brothers, when they get together after a while, you know, they kind of pick on each other a little bit and laugh and then pick on somebody else and laugh. And I kind of watched that. And I'm sure they could tell you what I said, but I said something I think that was a little surprising for them for being this petite little white woman. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't think I'll repeat it. But I said something and they all turned and they didn't know what to do. And then they just burst out laughing. And I said, okay, we're cool. Um, but I just kind of watched them and said, you know, well, hey, you know, I, you know, work at a, a school and I got sassy teenagers and, um, you know, you can call me Jen, but they call me the nice white lady that helps them write. And, you know, you you find kind of funny things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just kind of let them take it from there. If they have something on their mind, um, they will let you know. And um, you can tell when there's a lull in conversation or when someone's a little uncomfortable or maybe it's just time for a switch, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they don't have a ton of contact with people. And so sitting in a room visiting for two and a half hours is um, taxing. Yeah. Um for them. And so, um, yeah, we just, I, (laughs) my husband asked me, um, when I came home from the first visit, you know, well, how was it? And I said, it felt like I was at a neighborhood block party meeting neighbors. I didn't know. Hmm. Like it just felt like so natural. And we have the quarters, um, our Tupperware with the quarters. Yes. Um, for the guys to participate in the visits, it's very much a privilege to them. And in their agreement to participate in the visit, they have to give up their dinner. Um, I don't know the reasoning behind that. Um, and we have always found that to be not okay with us. And so we buy them dinner from the vending machine. And they are so excited. They come with their order ready to go. You know, I want the bacon cheeseburger and heat it up for, you know, 45 seconds. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they come with their order and they're so wonderful and they're such good stewards of our money. Mm. You know, a lot of them will say, well, I want the Italian sub because you really get more for your money on that one. (laughs) You know, I mean, they really care about that. Yeah. Um, You know, and one of the uh, guards in the guardhouse um, has asked several times um, in a way that just makes me want to express love to her. Um, she says, well, I don't know why you go up there. You know, what do you guys even do up there? Wow. And I said, we just sit around and talk and eat Twizzlers, which is really what we do. <laughs> you know, we get a pack of Twizzlers and we pass it around and that's something natural. You know, we're sharing something, um, whatever we have. Um, That's you know. what friends do. You just yeah. waste time together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just hanging out, chatting about whatever is on our mind and sharing a meal together, whatever that may be. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's what our quarters are for is because we know that they're giving that up and we want to make sure that they have a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they view that vending machine cheeseburger as very much a treat. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that paints the picture of what is a treat when you're Mm -hmm. on death row and what Mm -hmm. day-to-day life looks like for that to be the treat that you look forward to, that you would forego your dinner in order to participate in the visit. And then the treat is getting the vending machine meal from your friend who's coming to see you. Yeah. What surprised you the most after you left your first visit? What was the biggest, I was not expecting that moment. I think the intense similarities that I found in our hearts, um, I'm not sure if this is relatable for everyone listening, but I've always been someone who likes 
a little bit of the dark side of humanity. You know, the books I read, one of my favorite authors is Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I like a little bit of the dark and the weird, and I like that. And for some reason, I connect to that. And so Uh the books I read or a show I watch has got a little bit of that edge. and A little twistiness. Yeah. And I that human brokenness that was Mm -hmm. so easy to relate to, you know, whether it's a mortal sin or a venial sin, or it was just human brokenness and... That w- that was wonderfully surprising to me, um, and I I love it. You know, people ask all the time, you know, well, would you go again? And I say, oh, heck yeah. I can't wait for the next one. And it, every time I go, I should just learn from now on that I need to take the next day off or something. But every time we go, the whole ride back, we are just energized sometimes in a really positive awesome way and sometimes really passionate about an injustice or um you know a different situation and but we're just energized in a really powerful way you can feel all the way to your bones and I always stay up I mean well past two o'clock in the morning when we come back just you can't slow your brain down you can't slow your heart down it's just like your whole body feels it. And I felt that the only other time is when, one, I got married to my amazing husband, but also when I um, converted to Catholicism and I had, um, you know, the sacrament of the Eucharist for the first time. And that whole body feeling um, was just, it is so powerful, you almost crave it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, I feel so close to God when I'm there. Um, and I, it feels like going to church, if that makes sense. It does. Because I can only imagine what the guy's faces look like when they're able to gaze upon someone mm-hmm. who they know is not judging them. Yeah. Who they know loves them just because they're a human being mm-hmm. and because they deserve love. Yeah. And that you're going to show up for them mm-hmm. and talk about whatever is on their heart. Yeah. And you're not there out of pity. Mm-hmm. You're not there to judge. You are not there with any agenda. It's just showing up. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's what it's all about, to be the body of Christ for one another. And so for you to say that it feels like church to you, me having never experienced going to Mm -hmm. death row, it, um, I think it's so beautiful and inspiring because you hear that we're all called to live out the spiritual, spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the corporal works of mercy, this is one of the questions I wanted to talk Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. is to visit the imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And so in preparing for our talk today, I thought, I wonder what Jen would think about this. Would she Mm -hmm. say, are we all literally called to visit the imprisoned? And before you answer that, Mm -hmm. 
If you're not called to literally visit the imprisoned, then what can the average person who's not involved in this ministry, who's not participating in Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty, Mm -hmm. how can those people support those who are either in the general population of prison or are on death row? So do we literally Mm -hmm. have the call to visit the Mm -hmm. imprisoned? And if not, how do we support those who are imprisoned? You know, I, I reflect back on when... My dad started his visits and I thought, you know, you are crazy pants. I (laughs) am certainly not called to do that. Um, And it, you know, there certainly is uh, an educational curve there. Um, And I'm sure not everyone is called to do that. Um, You know, my husband, my mother, they said, that's not my thing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and that, you know, may not be their gift. Um, but for me, it is, um, I love it and I know I'm doing good and it matters. So for me, I feel very called to that work of mercy for other people, um, you know, who want to get involved or want to learn more. Um, there's, you know, in the, in the Catholic church, there's a lot of, uh, pro-life teachings. There's a lot of, um, you know, sharing gifts of mercy and forgiveness and the beauty that is the sacrament of confession. But I don't think there's always an energy behind that um, of an urgency. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the that energizes me with these visits is I feel an energy of, you know, I might not see this person the next time I go. Um, there is that sense of urgency. Um, and so, you know, getting involved with something that you're, that you're passionate about. Um, and for me, it, it happens to be visiting my guys. Yeah. <laughs> so how would you say the average person mm-hmm. who does not feel that they have the call to participate mm-hmm. in this particular ministry can support those who are imprisoned? Sure. Um, I think there's a couple really simple ways, um, you know, providing them with just a, a tiny fund so they can communicate with the outside world. Um, unfortunately, with the bureaucratic structure um, that's in place right now, they're not always able to do that. Um, and there's a couple that are quite frank. They said, oh, yeah, I can't email you back yet. My money hasn't come in. Um, you know, even if it's $5. Um, just the power to communicate with another person. I think is really great. Um, you How know, could someone, if I wanted to send mm-hmm. funds to the guys so that mm-hmm. they could have communication abilities, how would I go about doing that? I think that's something really great we should put in the show notes. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and we can add whatever yeah. after the fact. If you find the answers to these questions, yeah. then I will. And I can always retroactively add on things mm-hmm. if we find out more information. Yeah. Because that's something that I wonder about how. Yeah. So that's the first thing you would recommend if someone wanted to send mm-hmm. funds so yeah. that the guys could communicate with people. Any yeah. other concrete specific ideas? I think um, taking part in any political action that um, supports their right to life um, or just their human dignity. Um I think it's really 
in my mind, um, I have a lot of Catholics who ask about, you know, well, is this really pro-life? Um, you know, because they're, you know, it's kind of a hierarchy of life almost because they're not necessarily innocent. And I always say, well, that's between them and God. Um, it's still a life worth living. Um, that something really fabulous um, can come from. Um, you know, the, the gifts and the power that they've brought me, I don't think I'll ever be able to measure. Um, and the other people and, um, you know, have helped me decide to pursue something different I'm really passionate about in my life and go to law school. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of power um, that we kind of have... Um, we're not always seeing through the right lenses, but taking political action and saying, you know, um, it's not right to be pursuing execution um, for these men um, and standing up for that in a really real way. Um, you know, their, their basic needs. Um, that may be a whole other episode. <laughs> um, medical care and, and communication. Um, I think those are really great ways to get involved and um, we can put some of that in the show notes. Is there a, de- this is a random question I mm-hmm. just thought about when you were talking about medical care. Is there a dedicated physician? How, what does medical care look like for those who are on death row? Um, I think if you ask the guys versus you ask the system, you're going to get two different answers. Um, there's one, um, guy that I really love visiting with because we are both type one diabetics and so we're Betus buddies and (laughs) we're what buddies? Betus buddies. We got the diabetes. (laughs) And so I'm sorry. I did not hear that correctly the first time. I got it. Okay. Go. So we, we exchange our Betus buddies notes and, um, you know, is they're very much aware of uh, our struggle in um, starting a family. And so they um, are very supportive and wonderful, like friends would be. And, um, you know, I ask about their health. And um, I've asked a lot about um, one one man's health um, with his diabetes. And uh, they it's kind of like um, in any institution, you don't have the control over your own body or what your body needs. And so, you know, as a diabetic, I think, well, I need to give my insulin shot at a certain point before or after I eat. Um, And they aren't in control of that. When a shot comes because they don't administer it, when their meal comes because they don't get it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's some um, management sides of that. You know, do you refuse your insulin because dinner's not coming for another hour. Or you're having to forego your dinner to participate in a visit. Yep. Um, or, you know, other circumstances. And so, um, you know, they may be viewed as, well, they're refusing treatment. You know, well, not really. Um, and so there's some barriers there. Um, there's some things, um, and I'm not sure what uh, changes have occurred. You know, there's a lot of uh, news articles recently about riots at the prison and, um, you know, lots of changes there. And so I'm sure it's a continual, um, work in progress. And I want to assume positive intentions, um, which is very hard. (laughs) Um, so I know that that's something that they're working on. Um, 
but um, there's a requirement for what they're, the minimum care they're supposed to provide. Um, although um, in talking with um, the guys, many, many cases that is certainly not met. So Jen, what would you say if you could speak to a room full of average people like me who have not had any inter- interaction with the guys? Mm-hmm. What do you want them to know about the guys? They're awesome. <laughs> um, they're really great friends. Um, you know, they you develop a relationship where they really are like your friend. Um, you know, you might get a birthday card. Or, um, you know, they hand write letters um, to, to people. I remember when my dad had a heart attack um, a few months before um, I got married. And the guys wrote letters. They wanted to know how he was doing. You know, congratulations. You know, I hope that you're um, real excited for this upcoming event. And just like you'd communicate with friends. Um and I think that's kind of hard to see sometimes um, with our society's views on that. Um, but I kind of relate to them in a weird way that there's a there's a darkness to everyone. And that's the easy part to see. Um, it's harder to see the heart that's wounded and the forgiveness that God offers them. Um, but they're really fantastic people and... They have so much to offer. Um, And many of them actually are fabulous artists. Um, We are (laughs) doing a... um, We'll put this in the show notes too. There's uh, an art exhibit um, that's going to be happening. Um, We'll include some information. um, Where there are four pieces of artwork um, done by the guys. uh, One by Jorge Galindo one by Jose Sandoval, and two by Raymond Mata. And three of them are my dad's, and one is mine. You know you make it when they give you artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, has to go through the proper channels, and you have to pick it up at the guardhouse, and sometimes you can pick it up, and sometimes you can't. And um, But they are large um, pieces of art, and they are unbelievably gorgeous. Um, sometimes it's uh, charcoal, pastel, chalk, um, whatever um, they may have access to at that point in time um, with systemic barriers um, in that institution, but they are gorgeous. And so they're going to be featured um, with some information about the guys um, in our ministry with them. Um, and so they are, of course, one of a kind and absolutely priceless. And so <laughs> they will be uh, well taken care of um, in the setting that they will be in. Um, but that certainly surprised me was, you know, I said, oh, I'll make you something. And I said, oh, okay, sure. But, you know, they uh, Ray asked, you know, what kind of colors do you have in your house? You know, do you like landscapes? Do you like waterfalls? You know, what, what would you like? Mm-hmm. And he literally thought about the colors of my house and what I like to decorate with and, you know, made me something like a friend would get me a Christmas present, you know, something that would go in my house that I would really like and I would cherish. And that special connection, um, I think is really, is really awesome. 
And it's something that is the work of his hands that he has yeah. had physical interaction with mm-hmm. and that he knows is going to be a physical, tangible gift that he can give to you to be a, a part of him that comes to your home. And yes. how cool that is that he's yeah. able to have that connection with mm-hmm. you despite being in the prison on death row yeah. and not being able to visit your home, that he can be with you yeah. in that way. That's yeah. really cool. And it brought him joy. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, just think about all of our creative outlets that we participate mm-hmm. in on a regular basis and how much more limited their ability to participate in the creative outlets must yeah. be and what a gift his artistic yeah. expression must be for him and for yeah. the other men who find yeah. that therapeutic for art. I would like to know when it comes to being a Catholic woman, mm-hmm. a Christian woman, you have this understanding of what we believe forgiveness is, what grace is, what mm-hmm. mercy is. Has your participation in this ministry changed your view on those things or maybe given you greater insight to those? Can you speak to that? Um, I think it's given me a very powerful understanding of forgiveness um, because it kind of has to be an automatic thing. You know, I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder, you know, close enough that we can smell each other's breath um, with someone, you know, who may be convicted of X, Y, Z. And it's very easy to say inmate prisoner convicted of X, Y, Z. And it is hard to say, you know, my friend, um, and to see them as God sees us, I think is just, it was so, so powerful for me and really helped me in going about my general confession and still in subsequent confessions is how, you know, well, you know, this is a really big wound for me. I mean, how can I bring this to God? You know, um, and that I'm going to use the word bravery that it takes to do that. Um, and these men have to do that in a very public way. Um, and I admire that. Um, you know, they are wearing their wounds on their sleeve for everybody to see it. Um, and I admire that about them because I'm not sure if I would be strong enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know, So you, as we've talked about, know the background on a lot of the guy's Mm -hmm. individual cases. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that some of the details maybe come up during your visits, maybe not. Um, There's a few cases that I am pretty well-versed in. Um, And sometimes, depending on, you know, if there's an appeal going on or they've been working with an attorney, um, they may bring that up. Um, I don't ever bring up um, what their conviction is, uh, or anything about their case unless they do. Um, that's kind of my general rule. Um, my dad has known them for many years longer than I have. And so they kind of have that a little bit more of that intimate relationship, um, with some of those details and, um, you know, being able to visit with him, um, in a more spiritual way. Uh, you know, he gets a little bit more of that than I do. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's not something I usually ask about. So I guess The place where I was going with Mm -hmm. that question was to know, do you feel that you are able to make a sense of where you think things went with the individual case and 
-hmm. not judging culpability, but just looking at Mm -hmm. the facts presented to you objectively and taking all of that information in Mm -hmm. and being able to remove yourself from that and look at whichever guy is Mm -hmm. in front of you and say, this is my friend. And to be able to detach yourself Mm -hmm. from those cases, what would you say... How do you reconcile all of that when you go into the visiting room? And would you say you are able Mm. to be a genuine friend to a person who you may be convinced is guilty of whatever the newspaper Mm. says? Like, would you say that someone could call you hypocritical for being friends Mm -hmm. with someone who you may be convinced did all of these various actions. Am I making any yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. Because I could see someone saying, isn't that being two-faced? Yeah, to, yeah. To, to say, I'm your friend, but I think you did this thing that maybe you're telling me you didn't. Or sure. that. Yeah. Um, I kind of... It, but you talked about the culpability yeah, piece it's, of it, too. It's easier for me... Um, maybe too easy to um, not make a judgment on if they're guilty or innocent. You know, I, I think about, well, I go to, um, I go to confession with my husband and I don't know what he's confessing. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of view it as it's between them and God. Mm-hmm. I can't repair it. I can't fix it. I can't heal their heart. Um, I can hopefully bring them closer to God and show them love. Um, But I think about, you know, Jesus on the cross and, you know, in moments in his life, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that's all I can ask Mm -hmm. is just forgive them. And I approach it with um, a saying that I I learned um, actually this Easter when I went to confession um, with a wonderful priest. And I have to say, I forced myself to go face to face to confession. Maybe that's a new Catholic thing. I don't know. I gotta really own up to it or something. <laughs> if I go face to face. We're going to do this. We're that's gonna right. Do Let's do it right. Um, and so I, he told me as I was really struggling with a couple of wounds, um, and just really dug deep in that, in that season. Um, and he really reflected and said, um, you know, the words that Jesus said when he had risen and then he went to meet the disciples in the upper room, he didn't greet them with, you know, wow, you rotten scoundrels. <laughs> you know, he said... That's what I would have done. Yes, which is so easy. Yeah. You know, I can't believe this, you guys. And yeah. he's just said, peace be with you. Mm-hmm. And I have just reflected on that since that time of approaching people with that sense, which sometimes takes many, many, many deep breaths of mm-hmm. peace be with you and let it go. Yeah. And just mm-hmm. God will take care of it. And so all I can do is show them love. And I that's... think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think it is extremely possible to be a friend mm-hmm. And not go to the place of culpability because that's mm-hmm. not your job anyway. That's God's job. Mm-hmm. And to be the face of Christ for them and just mm-hmm. love. In that day and in that moment. 
Yeah, and that's yep. what we do for everybody. Yep. That's what we're called to do for everyone. So I, I just love that you're participating in this ministry. I think it's beautiful. I think that it's inspiring, not that we all have to live out this specific way of sure. ministering to people. <laughs> I agree that I don't think we all have that call, mm-hmm. but it's beautiful to see someone live it out and live it out well. So yeah. thank you for your example. I love it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. If we could move on to our listener questions. Mm-hmm. The first one is from Shelly. She says, do most of the prisoners you minister to feel sorry for their crimes? If they admit to committing the crimes, do you feel that there is true rehabilitation opportunities for prisoners? How can we support your vocation besides prayer, of course? Um, I have never asked um, my guys if they uh, have a feeling of remorse or they feel sorry for the crimes they're convicted of. That's something that I always, you know, like um, we just talked about there. I kind of remove myself from that's kind of a between you and God type of thing. But I have had conversations um, about, you know, people, um, a few of the guys talking about how they've worked very hard to get closer with God. You know, they have worked very hard to confess their sins and repair their wounds and heal their heart. I really feel like there's rehabilitation opportunities in the ministry that I do, um, I think is how I'll answer that. Um, as far as system-wide opportunities, no. Um, and certainly not for death row inmates because the goal is not rehabilitation in that situation, it is death. And so through what I do, that's where I kind of feel that rehabilitation is that healing of the heart in that day and in that moment. You know, other ways you can support that definitely by prayer you know, pray for these men and the lives that they are leading where they are leading them. Okay, next question from Rick. Do they ask her or him, this is a her, (laughs) do they ask her to pray for them? Any noticeable differences by way of religion, Muslim, Christian, or Jew? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, a few of them have asked for some prayer, um, you know, when we talk a little bit more intimately about some spiritual things. Um, You know, if they're struggling for something or... You know, if I am, um, I'm quite frank because I'm also have human brokenness um, and say, you know, hey, pray for my husband and I as we're trying to start a family or pray for, you know, so-and-so. They're going through, you know, my friend's mom has cancer. Um, You know, it's weighing on my heart. Um, A lot of them um, are not Catholic, um, but very much open to other religions. Um, Most of them are practice, um, or at one point, um, Christian. I don't think I notice any differences by way of religion. The central focus for them is love. Next question is from Courtney. How does one have the opportunity to minister to death row inmates? (laughs) Uh, if you have the calling, (laughs) um, and I think, you know, we kind of talked about that in the beginning of, you know, joining joining a group, um, kind of exploring it. You know, I've talked with a couple of groups, you know, my PEO chapter, um, a couple of other um, smaller groups about ministering. And a few people have said, you know, I think I'd like to join you sometime. That sounds kind of interesting. And going as a group is certainly less intimidating. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be responsible for an entire conversation yourself. And it's a little bit more comfortable. And if anyone wants to join me, I'll have my contact information on the show notes. 
Okay. I'd love to have you. Awesome. <laughs> and I have a question to dovetail with that. Is it possible for someone to participate in Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty without moving forward and also visiting oh, the yes. death row inmates? Absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, if that's a cause you want to um, support with your time, money, or effort, absolutely. Um, you do not necessarily have to have the calling um, for ministering to death row. Is there a website for Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty? Yes. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Last question from the listeners, from Jane. Does your guest feel she has been changed by sharing this ministry? Yes. Oh, that song by Wicked, you know, changed for the better. Oh, yes. That's yeah. like, that just popped into my head. Um, that is absolutely how I feel. Um, I think I am very much in the place I am spiritually and in my heart um, from this experience. You know, when you, I feel very much like I'm close to friends. You know, when you have that connection with a friend that's just like, oh, we could stay up all night talking, you know, I'm so jazzed to see them again. And you just have that instant connection. I feel that to this ministry and it really has, has changed me um, for the better. And I'm forever grateful to these men. Thank you for sharing about your experience. And like I said earlier, I'm so inspired by your witness. And I hope that even if those who are listening to the show are still questioning how they feel about capital punishment in Mm -hmm. general, Mm -hmm. I would just encourage everyone to prayerfully review what we as Catholics, if you are a Catholic listener, what the catechism teaches us about capital Mm -hmm. punishment and just to think about what God would call us to and what Mm -hmm. Jesus would say if he were meeting with the guys face to face. Yeah. Uh, Let's go ahead and wrap up with some fun closers. Yeah. Something uh, a little bit different, change of pace here. So I sent you two questions. Mm -hmm. The first one, I would love for you to share a quote unquote, this will make your summer better hack. (laughs) What did you come up with? Well, um, I am going to take an almost selfish jab at this because my husband and I both currently work in the schools. And so making our summer better is doing something together. Um, And we want to make an effort to do that in the cooler morning hours um, since, um, we will be having, uh, a wonderful child join our family in the coming months. We want to make sure we get our exercise. And so doing something together in the early morning and really starting our day, um, on a positive foot, um, is something that we really want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and plus if I get up early, then that means, you know, I can get more things done throughout the day. So I really maximize the productivity in the summer. (laughs) So getting up early is the... Yes, and and doing something together. Um, You know, whether that's just taking a walk or, you know, going to the farmer's market or, you know, going out for a fancy coffee date in the morning and just, you know, unplugging from technology and just talking. Um, Something that, because we're both not working the majority of the summer, it gives us that opportunity to, to connect. And so that always makes my summer better. I love that. I would say my make your summer better hack, 
I'm going to change my answer inspired by yours. Because <laughs> your answer made me think of something that I was doing last summer. And when the weather changed last fall, mm-hmm. I got out of this practice. But I had been doing my morning prayer time, which I usu- usually do down here in the studio. Mm-hmm. I had been doing it outside on the deck in the oh, morning. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Before the kids woke up. Yeah. I'd go out there with my cup of coffee and my breakfast and I'd have my morning prayer time out there on the deck before anyone woke up. So that's my make your summer better hack. Enjoy the warm weather for those of you who also live in the frozen tundra during the winter months. <laughs> yeah. Okay, summer mm. book recommendation. It can be okay. anything. It doesn't have to be light and breezy. Well, like, like you, um, I do love to read. And so I have three recommendations. Oh my goodness. Actually. You brought your A game. Okay. I did. <laughs> um, and actually all of them are geared towards our interview today. So wow. <laughs> um, if anyone's really feeling like a summer read. I'll, put, um, I'll link to all of these in yes. the show notes. Okay. One of them is called Change of Heart by Jodi Picoult. Um, that is one that I read many years ago, um, but really actually changed the way that I felt about the death penalty. Um, and it has kind of an interesting religious twist on it. And some of those are, you know, kind of a quick, easy read, um, in the way those are written. Um, another one is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. You recommended that to me and it's a must read. Um, did you listen to it? Did you do the audiobook, or did you read? I read the book. Okay. Read the book. Um, I like the paper. Yeah, yeah. The other one, actually, I have not read yet, and I just met the author at a recent conference. It's called Making Mana by Eric Lotke, and I met him, very divine intervention type of moment, and um, he has a fascinating history in his career, um, was a previous lawyer. It was just, it was one of those God moments. Um, in his book, uh, he talks, um, he creates a fictional story that's based on some real events on a case that he worked on. Um, and it, I will not give away the ending, but you will get to it. And it is absolutely beautiful. Wow. And you got to meet the author too. Yes. He just sat next to me at this conference and, um, out of, you know, 3,000 people, he said, hey, can I grab a seat by you? I said, sure. And we introduced ourselves and he was not there. He just writes books on the side. And um, we just got to talking and ended up talking about death row ministry. And he says, oh, well, you should read my book. It's almost as if God were involved. Yes, it was so perfect. So wow. those are some good, some good ones for the summer. What are you going to be reading? Everything. All of the books. <laughs> Um, one that I just finished reading today, it was a five star read. I am going to be totally evangelistic about it now. It's called The Seven Secrets of Confession by Vinnie Flynn. Holy cow. Mm. Um, Cradle Catholic over Mm -hmm. here thought she knew what confession was all about. Everything I have experienced in the sacrament of confession in the past year and what I learned in these different books that I read over Lent that my spiritual director made me read and then this book I just feel like I have a totally different understanding of and appreciation for the sacrament of confession to the point that next to the Eucharist which will never be outdone in terms of my favorite sacrament Mm-hmm. I just cannot get enough of the sacrament of confession and reading this book will just make you fall even more in love 
with the sacrament. So, oh, how awesome. So I love that one. But if I have to come up with a fiction read, I stink at fiction. And I don't have a title for anyone. So listeners, we are going to depend on you to give us the light, breezy fiction read that we clearly cannot come up with between the two of us. <laughs> we have some heavy summer reads. <laughs> yes. So we've given you the good nonfiction and then the Jody Picoult fiction. And then the third one was fiction yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, listeners, we're going to depend on you for the stereotypical beach fiction read because we did not deliver on that. But these sound like really good reads. Well, Jen, I'm going to let you go unless you had any other closing thoughts for the no. listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly an honor. I've read your blog for many years and been a total fangirl. And so I'm just thrilled <laughs> to I'm, be on today. I'm working on just accepting compliments. So I'm just going to say thank you. But yes. thank you for coming on the podcast. This My was pleasure. awesome. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Many thanks to Jen for coming on the podcast. Uh, A couple of things that I wanted to share that you can also find in the show notes. You can find a link to Nebraskans for alternatives to the death penalty, as well as a link to those interested in finding out more about the National Association of Catholic Chaplains. If you would like to contact Jen to find out more about her ministry, her email address is in the show notes. It is jennifersmith2524 at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to find out more information from For Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty, another email address to get in direct contact with the group is matt at nadp.net. And if you'd like to find out any more information, I have links in the show notes. Um, Jen mentioned an art display that's currently happening in the parlor of First Presbyterian Church in Lincoln. And as she said in the episode, that art display is um, displaying works by Jose Sandoval, Jorge Galindo, and Raymond Mata. And those works are on display in the parlor of First Presbyterian Church in Lincoln, along with information about the men and the ministry that Jen is a part of. Also, I wanted to be sure and say thank you for all of your generous feedback and your ratings and reviews that you've been leaving in iTunes. I am, again, like I always say, blown away by all of the great feedback that I get week after week for the podcast. When I went to record this one, I couldn't believe I was saying it was episode 20. So it has been such a fun hobby and I keep getting such encouraging words from all of you. So I look forward to continuing on with this ministry, and I hope you continue to enjoy it as well. Until next time, don't be afraid to begin again and share what you heard while you were folding.